You're listening to WEHC 90.7. This is Art Speaks, a production from the William King Museum of Art in Abingdon, Virginia. We are a free admission uh, local arts museum um, in southwest Virginia with contemporary and traditional regional works. Um, today, I am speaking with James Cullinane, uh, an artist from New York City, and we are talking about a new exhibit up at the McLaughlin Center for the Arts at Emory & Henry entitled American Lie. How are you today, James? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So what can you tell me about American Lie in, in a nutshell? Um, overall, it's about, uh, I would say, well, there's 53 works in the show, so it, it, it's crowded. But basically, um, I emptied my studio and, and bought it all down here with the intent to present the best ex exhibition I could present. And um, I'm really pleased with both the professionalism of the gallery and the uh, work that the students did. And um, I'm very glad to be here. That's excellent. Um, do you often work in a university setting with students? I have done so in the past several times, yes. Um, I did, I, I used to do larger uh, site-specific architectural pieces, and I did one at Rice University, and I've spoken at SUNY Albany in New York, and one or two other places as well, but um, I think this is the most extensive um, exhibition I've ever I've ever done in a gallery um, in terms of number of pieces and the um, desire to present as much work as possible in the best possible way. How did we get to this this uh, specific exhibit of works? Like what type of, of art media do you work in? Um, and what do you feel that this show is communicating about both your work and also as a message? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of work. I think one of my concerns was that it would look like a group exhibition. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I, I think that you do signature things in your work that even if the visual uh, data looks different, there's a, there's a consistent um, intent that shows up in the work. And, you know, I'm a painter, but a painter with an asterisk because, um, I mean, I, I went to Cooper Union back in the 1970s when you could find Andy Warhol walking around on St. Mark's Place, and I lived on St. Mark's Place. You know, I was trained as a painter. We, we had a kind of a Bauhaus structure in terms of the um, foundation program. And, um, you know, I worked for most of my undergraduate time just focusing exclusively on painting. I think that at some point um, I started to think about other things besides just pure painting. I, I mean, certainly Marcel Duchamp was a huge influence. Um, I started to think about non-retinal painting. And at a certain point I, I began to make pieces in the 80s, that uh, mid-80s, that involved... I, I guess I could say that it started with um, my day job. I w I've worked as a um, museum preparator at the Guggenheim, the Whitney, MoMA, um, the Morgan Library, kind of everywhere over the years. And the Guggenheim had sent me as a as an installer and courier to Bilbao, Spain. And um, during one of the one of my days off, as I was walking along the river, the, these outdoor stalls, I found a, I don't know, for fifty cents or a dollar, I found a, phalangista party, um, 
elementary school primer for kids, and it mostly had to do with, um, you know, like like a physical education uh, textbook, I guess you could say. But it was published in 1948, so Franco had uh, seized control of the country, and it was it was basically a fascist text. And what was interesting to me about these little two or three inch high illustrations for this book was that they they could have been the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts of America. They could have been anything, and they were beautifully done, sort of 1930s style um, black and white illustrations. And I saw them as a kind of you know, Walter Benjamin talks about quotations, be they verbal or visual, as being something that you can lift out of history and and use directly in your work. So he says something like, quotations in my writing are like the robbers by the roadside who made an armed attack and relieved the idle passerby of his convictions. So I love that, and I love the idea of, I mean, I always loved maps and diagrams and illustrations and dictionary images. I loved content that wasn't about art, but was more about information. And it has a kind of integrity that I love. And anyway, my what I ultimately wanted to do with this book was flip the images up vertically and make them 18 feet high out of nails. <laughs> and that's what I proceeded to do. So I did, I did one in the Brooklyn Museum. I did one at Rice University. I did one at the Kohler Art Center. And Typically, what I would do is is ask for a floor plan of the exhibition space, and I would have a rough idea of what images I would use, and I would take a projector on site, and I would play around with the location and the scale of the images that I used. And it also got into dealing with anamorphic projection, like in Holbein's Ambassadors, where you see a smear at the bottom of the picture, and it's meant to be hung above a doorway and and then when you lock in directly underneath at the correct viewing point you realize it's a skull so when I would project these images they would be um, if you stood exactly where I set up the projector there would be no distortion but as a viewer as you walked into the space the distortion becomes a factor so they started to look like I don't know like psychedelic Japanese armor or something I mean they were they were kind of um, it was an intense work process. It would be uh, like, you know, these these venues would always say, well, we'll give you some interns. And I'd be like, no, you actually have to have a budget to pay people cause, because I'm going to put them on a scissor lift for like the next 10 days and, and work them really hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, there was a kind of repetitive thing to it. And there was the issue of scale. And they were pretty wonderful. And the other big factor for me was I wanted them to be impermanent. I was thinking a lot about Navajo sand painting and other things, and um, I was really interested in producing something beautiful and fantastic to look at, but not a commodity. So um, those things would be up for like a month, (laughs) and then all the nails would get plucked out and thrown in a box and mailed back to me, and they would um, skim coat the wall and paint it white, and it's like it was never there. So I did a bunch of those. So I'm saying all this by way of saying that after a period of doing that for a number of years, I felt like I had said everything I had to say about mid-century fascism, and I just felt like it had played itself out. And I was always doing other work, other abstract drawings and other things, and I was like, 
at some point I decided, you know, you were trained as a painter. Why don't you see if you can make a decent painting? And, um, you know, a modest size painting. So I started playing around with other images. I was using Gothic barrel vaulting diagrams and some other stuff. You know, it took about three years before I did a painting that I actually liked. And that was humbling and challenging and made me want to start painting again. So the work has different phases in it. There's a a group of all red paintings that use steel engravings of animal traps, for example. And that was one body of work. I also, I guess there was a carryover because in some of the work that I still do, I use um, matte pins and nails. And I'm interested in the tension between representing pictorial space and just the tactile surface of the painting itself. And so a lot of times when I'll use these map pins, it, it, it's sort of, it's almost like, you know, manufactured pointillism. It's like a, it's like a built-in brush stroke. And I like that tension between representational space and what's going on on the surface of these things. And there's also a group of large four-panel pieces that are basically um, this kind of intense sort of constellation drawing where I'm, where I'm making uh, a dot and then drawing lines off of it, and it sort of almost has a constellation feel. And it, it's almost like a, I don't want to say meditative or prayer and, and those kind of connotations, but it, it is an intensely focused thing. And a lot of things are determined... Like just to take the example of, of those kind of panels, I will uh, apply several coats of gesso and sand them between coats until I get this nice chalky surface that's just right. And then I use these archival ink pens and the, the length of the line and the direction of the line is almost determined by the, the friction of the, of the pencil mark. Like you start moving through the gessoed surface and it has a certain velocity, and then, you know, I would stop, and then that's where a dot is. And then it, it sort of just became this, this meandering that had something to do with materials, but ultimately, I think when you stand at the group of four of them that are in the center of the gallery, there's a kind of unconscious optical thing that's going on the, on the periphery of your, your viewing that starts to sort of flicker a little bit. And I love stuff like that, too, where you're not you're not consciously controlling everything that goes on in the work. And they're also about the size of a, a doorway. They're almost, I, I, th- I think of them as like portals. They're, they have a nice scale um, that relates to the human body and so on. And then lastly, I, I think in the last couple of years, I've gotten a little more into doing a kind of drawing that's closer in appearance to, quote, abstract expressionist, although I think that is an outmoded way of expressing things. I, I almost feel like the the idea of like a um, a jazz solo and stuff, even though I, I love a lot of that music, I feel like it's an outmoded uh, form of expression for me. And I'm, and I'm always suspicious of just the overt expressionist mark. I almost feel like I need to have a rigid and rational system to be able to work. So that's how I think about those things. I, and I like the juxtaposition of the two. So a lot of the, a lot of the more recent work, um, again, I'll, I'll be using um, sampled images of diagrams or charts or other things, um, but there's a lot more um, messiness and expression going on too. 
uh, even though I question it constantly. I think it's interesting um, that you bring up like the influence of Marcel Duchamp and the use of both found object and found image, but when you approach that in like a very like anti-commodifying sense, even though you're working with manufactured works and then media like nails that relate to manufacture and labor, but then you're trying to like eliminate the commodity of the art itself mm-hmm. through that. Did you get that idea from Duchamp? Because I think something that's interesting about his work is that it's it was meant to kind of be, um, this is the artist that people might know from the Dada era, um, where it was supposed to be kind of nonsense and it was supposed to be pushing against what art is, but now it remains as these museum objects worth millions of dollars, mm-hmm. which make people angry about the very thing Duchamp wanted them to be angry about. Right. So then using his his um, work with found object as a jumping off point, but then you're doing kind of this work that's very analytical of labor um, and of manufacturing mm-hmm. through it instead of creating, creating a new object or creating something ephemeral. Right. Yeah, I mean, my politics are very much on the side of, of labor. Um, mm-hmm. And I've worked in my day jobs as a museum worker. I worked for for several years as an assistant to Richard Serra. Um, I traveled a lot in Europe installing shows for the Guggenheim, and it was great. I got to work with some amazing artists, like, you know, including Robert Rauschenberg and Ellsworth Kelly and mm-hmm. Felix Gonzalez-Torres, and those experiences were all really great. And, and, you know, like with regard to Duchamp, I think what's interesting to me about Duchamp, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things about Duchamp, but I think in some ways he was the, the freest man in the world in his time. He was no, um, he was extremely savvy. He was able to find patrons. He was able to sell Brancusi's work and others um, to collectors all over the world. So he he was he was very at ease around art, but he also talked about you know non retinal painting and 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 hating the smell of turpentine and and it's interesting to me that he took the language and the formal structure of cubism, but ultimately moved beyond it. I mean, he was like a rock star when he landed in New York in nineteen at thirteen and did nude descending a staircase, and you know he was you know the public was outraged and intrigued and and fascinated by him all at the same time. Um, and I'm, and I'm still fascinated by him, but you know, I also, there, there are many, many artists that I, or other figures outside of painting too, that are extremely important to me. Um, I mean, I think Samuel Beckett and James Joyce would be huge influences. I mean, you know, in music, you know, Morton Feldman, Miles Davis, there's so many, I I mean, Arthur Rambeau and poetry. I mean, I, I think like, you know, in film, Louis Bunuel, um, there are others. I mean, Truffaut, Godard. So in some ways, I think, for me, a lot of the, you know, painters as well, I love the, um, the I mean, Cezanne is a hero. I mean, you know, there's sort of a lot of the traditional people I love, but I also love so many things outside of, of art. I mean, Charles Olson, the poet, is a huge influence for me. I've been thinking a lot about him lately and actually got got to reading him again from the Emory Henry Library and thinking about him, you know. Um, so yeah, there's a broad, there's a broad range of, of artists. I mean, um, you know, there's that, that famous quote from Samuel Beckett too that I think is applicable to studio work and, it's, and being a painter. And it says, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, 
fail better. And he wrote that in 1983. And, you know, he, he also said he was... Samuel Beckett said, on the lookout for an elsewhere. And I think, mm-hmm. I think Duchamp was always on the lookout for an elsewhere, too. Um, you know, he talked about the, I mean, lately I've been thinking about with Duchamp, this notion of the infrathin, which is kind of fascinating, inframins in, in French. And he says, the warmth of a seat, which has just been left, is infrathin. Sliding doors of the metro, the people who pass through at the very last moment, infrathin. Velvet trousers, their whistling sound in walking by the brushing of two legs is an infrathin. When the tobacco smoke smells also the mouth which exhales it, the two orders marry by infrathin. So he always had this um, sort of comical science, but yet there is, I think, infrathin is an interesting idea that carries all the way through to the present day. I mean, I think John Cage's four minutes and 33 seconds of silence has some, you know, Duchamp and Cage knew each other and um, influenced each other. I mean, I think Cage was more influenced by Duchamp than the latter. But, you know, and it's important to remember, too, like Duchamp, when everyone thought he was had retired and was playing chess, which is what he told everyone, had a secret studio on 14th Street and did the famous Etendone that's now in Philadelphia. But I feel like I'm getting off talking too much about Marcel Duchamp, maybe. But he is a huge influence. I think it's um, it's interesting to discuss your influence as an artist because on the show we normally um, focus on regional artists mm-hmm. and a constant topic is how Appalachia as a region influences those artists. And that's part of what we really research as a museum as well and mm-hmm. display. Um, and your work, you're a New York-based artist in New York City, um, seems to be a huge influence in your work, not just directly as like a space, but also a lot of the artists, the musicians you're listing mm-hmm. are New York City mm-hmm. based people too. So communally influenced by that space. So so that's an, it would be an interesting discussion about like how does place influence the production of art? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up in um, on the wrong side of the river in Eastport, Maryland and Annapolis, right across from the Naval Academy, and we were poor, mm-hmm. and um, there were there were plenty of people in that community who I, I think you could say had Appalachian backgrounds or whatever. It was very very much so. Um, so uh, I said I de- identified with labor. Yeah, I identify with the poor and I identify with labor, and it's ironic that I'm. I'm in this industry that, you know, if you succeed at the highest levels, you're basically producing um, rare commodities for the ultra-wealthy and, you know, for money launderers and uh, bank executives and hedge fund managers and so on and so forth. Um, But I also, I definitely wanted to leave Baltimore. Uh, I had a plan and I was able to get a scholarship and leave. Um, and I never really looked back. And I love New York City. I'm also, uh, like all New Yorkers, I love and hate New York City. <laughs> but um, it, it has become home, and uh, I don't see New York as, as in some way... Uh, I, I, I guess I, lo- I, I see New York as just a place, but an important place. There's this great quote from Ezra Pound, too, that I, I think is kind of beautiful, and it was written right after World War I, and, and it says... And New York is the most beautiful city in the world. It is not far from it. No urban night is like the night there. Squares after squares of flame set up and cut into the ether. 
here is our poetry, for we have pulled down the stars to our will. And it's such a pretty amazing statement. I, but, it, you know, when I talk about formal language in my work and stuff, I mean, an, another factor is living in the grid. The, the grid in Manhattan was probably one of the most radical and abstract social and political developments maybe in the history of Western civilization. And I think that has, a, has had a huge influence on my work. I, I think also just that New York is the American dream. It's, it's partly the American night, nightmare, and people from outside of New York love to focus on that part of it. But, you know, I can tell you that the American dream lives there. I live in a community where there's, uh, in Queens, in Jackson Heights, New York, where there's something like close to 200 languages spoken within a two-mile radius. Um, and I'm proud of that. I mean, I do see New York as a refugee city, a place for people who have been oppressed. I mean, I'll never forget when I, as a kid, living in the East Village, I moved into, um, shared a place with another student, and his parents were Ukrainian. So we had access to the rather insular um, Ukrainian community in the East Village. And almost everyone, I think everyone, not almost everyone, everyone in the building um, spoke Ukrainian and very little English, and every person in that building, I believe, had a concentration camp number tattooed on their arm. And um, that was shocking and um, uh, a real learning experience for me. And because many of them, you know, they fled Hitler, but then they also had to flee Stalin because they were Jewish. So, um, and you know, Today, it's like a different kind of refugee. I mean, people in a lot of America love to scapegoat um, Latino population coming to New York. But I can tell you, like, my experience with that community is that they are hardworking and they are paying sales tax and they are not living off of the government. And um, they want the same things that every other immigrant group wanted, including my great-grandparents from Ireland. They want a better life for their kids, and they want to work, and they want to live in safety. And it's also important to note that many of the um, political and social conditions that cause these people to flee the, their country of origin has something to do with United States foreign policy uh, quite a bit. I mean, we literally paid for death squads in some of those countries, um, particularly Chile, Guatemala, Honduras. And they are they are unlivable, and I think most people. What I've learned from a life in New York is most people want the same thing. They want, you know, a chance to better themselves, a chance to give their kids a good education, and housing, and a decent job. So that's my experience with that. Um, and I and I do love that about New York. I mean, you know, you do see the tip of the um, economic pyramid in terms of wealth. And you also see um, the bottom of things. And I know that the community near where I'm staying, um, near the Virginia-Tennessee border on the Tennessee side, is one of the poorest counties in the state and maybe in the nation. So, um, you know, I see all that. In the end, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an artist and, I'm, and, you know, I'm out there, but I'm out there as a worker also. I was involved in trying to on the bargaining committee to um, form a art handlers union at, at the Guggenheim. So that's all I can say about that. But the, I guess the other thing about New York City that for me is 
makes me stay too is like you you really have a, just a cornucopia of um and just in terms of the visual arts i mean there's everything else too but you know like i'm a member at moma you can go to the met for free you can if, if you in, live in new york if you're a new york state resident <laughs> yeah. otherwise uh you pay mm-hmm. um i mean that's another thing that i not to get off on my leftist political soapbox too much but i think it's a disgrace that people have to pay to go to a museum like the Metropolitan Museum, like maybe we could reduce our Pentagon budget by like 2% or maybe we could actually tax corporations so that things like that would be provided. I mean, first and foremost, we need like healthcare and housing and education. And there are so many areas where I do believe in American democracy. I do believe that it matters and I do believe we're far from perfect, but but I think you know you continue to try. And the William King Museum of Art is does have free admission. Good, Good moment to tell everybody. Good that as well. Um, so one last question is: How do you feel since the presence of New York City, the grid, all the things we discussed are such strong influences in your work um, as an artist and what you what you think through with your process? Do you think that being here in this in Tennessee to do this show? is lending some influence to you too? Are you getting some Appalachian influence seeping in? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I love coming down here. I've loved talking to everyone. Um, I found the reception of the students uh, to be really interested and amazing. I, I mean, we had an opening and, I, and people were actually looking at the art and intensely and, and asking really great questions and um, and I hope I asked a few great questions too, because I mean, I did one, I guess, student um, classroom demonstration in which I tried to just ask the students how they felt about things and what it, what it, what their expectations are as young artists, those who are going to go on to become artists, which of course is a very small percentage of people. But I mean, I talked to extensively about Appalachian culture with one young man who I said, I hope you will run for office (laughs) when you leave school. Um, So, yeah, it's been an eye-opening, really positive experience for me being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Um, James, where can people learn more about you and your artwork? I have a website in progress, but you can look for me on, um, I have two Instagram sites. One is Night Train Cullinane, N-I-G-H-T-T-R-A-N-E-C-U-L-L-I-N-A-N-E. And the other one is James underline space Cullinane Art, James Cullinane Art. Sounds good. Um, (laughs) You're listening to 90.7 WEHC. This has been Art Speaks uh, with Charlotte Torrance, a production of the William King Museum of Art, um, a free admission museum in Southwest Virginia. Be sure to stop by the McLaughlin Center for the Arts and see American Lie, a collection of works by James Cullinane. And come and stop by the museum and see what we have going on at there as well.